the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, featuring Josh Edison and M. Dentis. Hello, you're listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. I am Josh Edison, coming to you from Auckland, New Zealand. And with me today is Aaron Rabinowitz, Professor of Moral Philosophy and host of the Embrace the Void podcast. Um, how are you, Aaron? I'm doing all right. Thank you all so much for having me on. Yeah, well, thank you for, for taking the time to come here, because this this obviously is a slightly different episode. Um, we have a Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre uh, episode to get through. Now, in the past, when we've had a paper that M um, has written, then we'd do a thing where Brian Keeley would come in and he and Brian and I would look at the paper um, and say so that we thought of it. This is this is a tricky one because we're, the thing we're looking at today is was joint written by M and Brian. Um, so that's why mm. we've had to go further afield to get Quite another one. Quite conspiracy. It is, it is. So I think we, when we do the Brian ones, we, we sort of have this conceit where Brian and I are, are calling in from some sort of alternate dimension where we've been posting the podcast all this time. I think M wanted us to do a similar thing to suggest that mm-hmm. we're from, from yet a third alternate dimension, but, um, but M's mm-hmm. not here. And what I'm interested in is... Uh, what is basically your take on this sort of thing? Because you have a, probably a fresher set of eyes to all of this than than I do. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm being from another dimension. It's obviously I've got an outsider's perspective here. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, and I, I don't know what you're going to do when it inevitably happens that uh, M and I publish something together. Who you're going to drag into yeah, that? Uh, I don't. You know, I don't even know. That's that's you know. a problem for the future. But yes, no, it'll be something future and or alternative reality you yeah exactly uh, someone else yeah so it's, it's been funny because i've been doing sort of work on conspiracism for a little while and recently got in touch with M via them messaging me after seeing some articles of mine and send me some articles of theirs with some pushback and while i still stand by my original articles i've certainly had my approach shifted by discussing things with M, so I guess I feel like the headline of my approach at this point is that like it does seem like particularism is true with regard to conspiracy theories, and that sucks for everybody, and that things are just going to continue to kind of get worse as a result of that fact. So that's that's where I'm at. How about you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the thing I see people say a lot is um, th- th- there's there's this desire to say. We're talking about conspiracy theories, and and they're obviously nonsense. And then people say, "Well, actually, hang on, there are plenty that are true." And and we look at the the, the Volkswagen emissions scandal or the Tuskegee experiment. We point to all these things and say this happened. And then people say, "Okay, okay, yes, fine, sure, but but we don't mean those ones. You, you know the ones we mean. We're, we're talking about about quote unquote those conspiracy theories that are the wacky ones. And right, yet, when right. you come and try to define or come up with a set of sort of properties that say this is the kind of conspiracy theories that we can write off as being irrational or whatever have you, um, I, I'm yet to see an approach that's worked. Yeah, and I'm sympathetic to that pushback, though I think at the end of the day the conclusion there then has to be that we we don't really have a way to undermine fully any conspiracy theories, and I'm not sure what that should mean for us in terms of what we actually end up believing about any of these subjects. Hmm. Um, but like, I also simultaneously think that it does seem clear to me that there are a variety of conspiracy theories that you ought not to believe, that you have, I would say, good reason not to believe, um, and that are harmful to believe. So squaring all of those things is definitely challenging. Yeah, a lot of the time it seems it just sort of shifts the problem a little bit if you say you shouldn't believe conspiracy theories that are, I don't know, implausible, then the question just becomes, well, how, how plausible is plausible and how do we define that? And we've just changed one problem of yep. definition for another one. But anyway, yep. let's 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 start looking at this paper. Great. So we have The Applied Epistemology of Conspiracy Theories, an overview. This is a chapter, chapter 21 of the Routledge Handbook of Applied Epistemology that Em and Brian worked on together. And I, I find sort of 
we've been looking, Em and I have been looking at the the, the, the various papers that have come out in, in the philosophy of conspiracy theories for a while, and it's got to the point that we, we, we've got far along enough that most of the papers we look at will contain within them sort of an, an overview of, he, of, of everything that's come before, sort of a summary of, um, mm-hmm. of the whole lot, which can be handy, um, which does mean when we're looking mm-hmm. at these ones, I tend to skip over things fairly quickly because they're stuff we've looked at before, but you might have some, some newer insights in them. But this certainly is, is, a big, is, is an overview. Yeah, I mean, I think this introduction is valuable because it sort of highlights the concerns that, like, there's really good reasons for us to, I think, want some way to undermine belief in harmful conspiracy theories like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. There are, you know, well-established connections between these conspiracy theories and things like the Holocaust. So we know that, or, you know, January 6th, like, like we know that belief in conspiracy theories can motivate harmful behavior and that some of these, at least, I think we have reason to believe are false and and so at the same time, we have this sort of series of failed attempts to try to come up with a, a functional kind of generalism with reference to things like vice epistemology. Um, and I do think that's really interesting as as like a virtue theorist, um, which is my background in moral in moral psychology and moral philosophy. I'm I'm sympathetic to a virtue theory approach. I'm sympathetic to habituating people to believe you know, in ways that are helpful, healthy, beneficial, stuff like that. But I also am sympathetic to the pushback from folks like M that, like, there's not anything fundamentally vicious about believing in conspiracy theories in the modern age. Hmm. So the this chapter begins, in some sense, conspiracy theories have been around as long as people have plotted secretly in the attempt to bring about ends in situations where doing so publicly and individually would seem less likely to succeed. In other words, conspiracy theories have likely been around as long as humans have conspired, probably since Homo became sapiens. However, with the coming of the 21st century, especially in a political context, concern over conspiracy theories has seemingly taken on an urgent tone. There have always been concerns over conspiracies, whether it be the Freemasons of the 18th century, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in the 19th century, or the Red Scare and the assassination of US President John F. Kennedy in the 20th century. But now some feel the need to talk of conspiracy theories, and the conspiracy theorists who hold them, as a social problem in need of a solution. Which I think yeah gets to what you were just saying. There there, there are there are definite yeah. problems, definite social ills that we can identify coming back to these. I think I, I I don't even know looking down if it comes up in this particular paper, but I think one of the, the pushbacks is the um the the social ills of being too quick to write off conspiracy theories sure. as, as as a way that that then can allow people in power to get away with stuff and um and write off their detractors. But we might come to yeah. that later. Yeah, I think there's a couple of good points to bring up in here, which is that psychologically, as social creatures, we are predisposed to be looking out for conspiracies amongst our fellow social creatures. Um, That's not necessarily a maladaptive approach. Um, And I also that there is, it does seem to me a modern problem of conspiracism. And my interpretation of it at this point is that when you start to see really radical social upheaval and progress in the you know modern period uh the overthrowing of aristocratic aristocratic systems um you see conservatives in particular turning to conspiracy theories about jews and things as a way to explain what seems impossible to them which is the idea that people just want equal rights and that seems crazy um so it must be the jews Um, So I think, you know, broadly speaking, a lot of conspiracism that we are worried about in the modern world is conspiracism on the political right because of the way that it fuels fascist backlash like World War II, uh, like the Holocaust and January 6th. Um, And that conspiracism is a reaction to genuine social progress. They're looking for an explanation for why things are getting worse as far as they can tell in a system that they believe is theoretically a just universe. Yes, I think papers like this take a very a very theoretical approach, I guess, when, as you say, we, and we seem to be seeing more and more, although I don't know if that's just a, just a sort of recency bias, that there are tangible, you know, a, a tangible and wide-ranging effects to some of these things. 
Right. There's there's debates about whether it's a moral panic. And, I, you know, like I do think that there is some amount of panicky discussion of conspiratorial thinking. I don't think it's, you know, part of the reason I've been persuaded by M's work is I do think there is a very lazy approach to generalism and, and the writing off of conspiratorial thinking. But I also think, you know, contra studies that suggest that there hasn't been a rise. I think there's been a a sea change in the way that conspiracism plays a role in right-wing American politics that's been going, that's been growing since the 60s, but that has really peaked in the modern age in a way that I think should be genuinely unnerving. And that could be intensity, that could be elite usage, you know, there's lots of ways that could show up. Yeah, it's definitely the case that something feels different. People people say that a lot. I know when Ems talked to Joe Yusinski, who, who has been surveying right. people on sort of conspiracy beliefs, Joe, I, I've heard Joe say when people say, "Oh, things are a lot more conspired now," he'll reply, "Really, more, more, more conspired than the Red Scare?" I mean, when you when you had an actual House Un-American Activities Committee fueled by these sort of sort of conspiracies, but I don't. Yeah, there's, there's the whole social aspect. I think that you said that there's 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 the internet and everything mixing in there it does seem to give it a different mm-hmm. different quality these days. I don't think we've left the Red Scare. I think if you look at the CRT queer theory moral panics, yeah, they are just shifted. The, continu- yeah. the continuation of the Red Scare, you know, like I think, and again, the Red Scare is heavily driven alongside fear of civil rights. I think, you know, the fear of communism and the fear of racial equality went hand in hand in America. And there was a violent backlash against both that was often conspiratorially minded, anti-Semitic, etc. Mm. So, returning to the paper, they they essentially, yeah. having, having given this introduction, they'll say that when you look at the history of how people have analysed conspiracy theories, there, there tends to be this assumption that there's there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with conspiracy theories or there's something wrong with conspiracy theorists. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that, of course, is that that conspiracies do occur. There have been things which you, you sort of the likes of your Watergates, which were initially written off as conspiracy theories, but turned out to be true. So we know from the start we can't make a blanket statement that every single conspiracy theory is wrong. So then the job becomes how do we right. sort the good ones from the bad ones? And this chapter suggests that well, the, the, the phrase they use is that's a mugs game. I don't know if that's a, a transatlantic expression, a mugs game. <laughs> it it, it, does, comes, does it gets come across, across enough, yeah. I understand, yeah. So th- they say, uh, more significant, though, is our belief that the question of which theories to accept and which to reject is, in an important sense, ill-formed. To see why one must reflect on the observation that perhaps unlike theories in the sciences, if there is knowledge of conspiracy theories, it's largely improvised knowledge. And that's a phrase that will be coming up a little bit later on. But uh, first, they, like, like all good philosophers, they start with a bunch of defining terms. So section two is conspiracy theories defined, where they come up with the uh, a definition that will be familiar to listeners of this podcast, at least the very, very general minimalist one. They just give it as yeah. uh, there exists or existed some set of agents with a plan. Steps have been taken by the agents to minimize public awareness of what they're up to. And some end is or was desired by the agents. So there's a very, very, very uh, wide ranging and, and all encompassing definition, which I think is where a lot of people, it's something people have for a problem with. How would you how would you define conspiracy theory? Yeah, I'm actually sympathetic to the very broad definition. I will. I want to mention. I think it's totally fair and to their credit to highlight the kind of pathologizing of the conspiratorial mindset. Um, this is something that I see both in the education work that I do in the like post truth theorizing and also in like skeptic circles um it's implicit in the idea you often see in like even like well-meaning skeptics who don't think that they're pathologizing when you ask them like what's the solution to conspiracy they'll often say well teach more critical thinking when when people are younger which implies that the the fault right in the conspiratorial Mm -hmm. mindset is a lack of critical thinking um that if you get that in there then you won't have this problem and so it is this kind of deficit approach to thinking about conspiratorial uh reasoning that i think is is questionable um that is like probably unjustified in certain cases there's a lot i think there's good reason to think that people with a lot of critical thinking can also end up in a kind of conspiratorial place especially in a society where it's increasingly plausible that there are actually conspiracies out there um so as as to this definition 
I like it. I, I, you know, I like the idea of sort of stripping out the attempts to like build a negative feature into a conspiracy that like what we literally mean by a conspiracy is just some people doing some stuff together in secret towards a goal. I have certainly harassed M a little bit about pieces of this, like is really, is all three of these actually essential, right? Um, You know, what about this edge case? What about that edge case? But if anything, those are attempts to broaden the definition even more, not to narrow it. Um, Mm. So yeah, I don't have any problem with a very broad definition. I'm fine with calling a birthday party a conspiracy theory, for example. I think that's a useful way to push back on like sort of assumptions about what is and isn't a conspiracy theory. Yeah, and I think... I, th- I think once again, the more you try to qualify it, the more the more it shifts the problem, or the more it introduces new problems. As you have to try and say what you mean about these extra conditions that you try to put on it. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's the. That, that, I mean, this this obviously this is M's standard definition and Brian's, I guess. So it's no no real surprise that they come up with that one. But they then go on to in the next section introduce the idea of the generalist versus the particularist approach. Yeah. Well, one, one thing we should say, I think, I think it's interesting about this, the number two on this particular definition, steps have been taken by the agents to minimize public awareness of what they are up to. Um, that's softer than I've seen it put sometimes, which mm. is that like the thing is, is kept secret. Um, minimize public awareness could be, you know, it's like, for example, I guess uh, the Rwandan genocide, right? You have sort of a mix of secret behaviors, but also like broadcasts about who to attack and when and that sort of thing. So you could argue that that's that still counts as a conspiracy theory, even though it's or a conspiracy, even though it's not completely kept secret. Yeah, we see that a bit in the in the corporate world as well. Sometimes companies are doing things that mm. technically aren't secret, or, or sort of the, the webs of ownership between different, you know, who, who actually owns what policies, like planned obsolescence and so on, which are not not actually kept secret, but they're certainly not that they, they, they they're not promoted. They, they're not put out there, and they would shed right. no tears if nobody actually found out about this stuff. So yes, it, it can be a little more a little more, more murky in that area. I also wonder about one, there exists or existed some set of agents with a plan. Is some set of agents including a set of one? Could you have a conspiracy yes. of just one individual? Yeah, and, that's, yeah, that's a thing Em and I talked about a long time ago when we were first coming up with this stuff. That It, it does feel strange sometimes to, to if, if the idea that you could have a person plotting this particular sort of action, and that's not a conspiracy, but two people doing the exact same thing now it is, it, it does seem a little bit right. odd. And, and then, yeah, you get into those weird edge cases. If they've mentioned it to someone else, is it a conspiracy? Is it, you know, do they have to be actively right. involved? Yeah, it, it is. There is room for a little bit of wiggle room there. If you had a person with split brain and, and like, yes, yeah, ha- yeah. half their brains were conspiring mm. with each other, right? If you had an artificial intelligence, if it's by itself versus if it makes a copy of itself and conspires with that copy. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's some good philosopher talk there. <sighs> Just causing problems. Yep. Uh, so they move on to, to, to introduce the idea of the generalist versus the particularist approach. Um, mentioning mm-hmm. the, the paper by Joel Bunting and Jason Taylor that, that introduced the terms. Uh, as they put it, well, and by they, I mean Em and Brian put it, uh, according to the generalist, the rationality of conspiracy theories can be assessed without considering particular conspiracy theories. On this view, conspiratorial thinking, qua conspiracy thinking, is itself irrational. The particularist, however, denies that the rationality of conspiracy theories can be assessed without first considering particular conspiracy theories. That is to say, the particularist claims that no matter our views about conspiracy theories generally, we cannot dismiss particular conspiracy theories. Rather, we must evaluate them on their individual merits. Which is, I think, the the familiar the, the, the definitions we're both familiar with. Yeah, I, I feel like I want to maybe tweak a little bit the generalist definition there, because I feel like there's a... That's kind of like a very, very strong generalist position, which just says the mere positing of a conspiracy theory of any sort can be dismissed, mm-hmm. you know, merely being a conspiracy theory. Um, maybe there are some people who buy that, but I think if we're being generous to the you know generalist position, right, what most of them are going to say are there are certain features that we can notice that like are red flags that should give us a like 
a very high burden of proof or, you know, high levels of skepticism with regard to a particular theory. So classic examples would be things like if the theory involves thousands of people being in on it without it ever leaking mm -hmm. out, that seems highly implausible. I know that Emma and other folks have talked about like features that might we might think that make a conspiracy theory look in this kind of general sense unlikely or something. Yeah, yeah, I think possibly you could say that a generalist who uses that particular definition that conspiracy thinking is itself irrational is probably not using the kind of definition of conspiracy theory that, that Eamon Bryan just introduced above. They're probably of the sort that, 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 that when they say conspiracy theories are irrational, they specifically mean those kinds that right. we have trouble defining, which is why we go for the general one, but um, yes. And so then the, 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 the final section, I think, of uh, term definitions is section four, conspiracy theory theorists and conspiracists, where they bring up those two particular terms. They say that um, conspiracy theory theorists exist in philosophy, but also uh, in political science, mentioning Joe Yusinski and Joseph Parent, uh, Karen Douglas from the field of social sociology, Jaxie Bratich from media studies, and so on. Um, and then divides the the conspiracy theory theorists into conspiracy theory skeptics. Um, well, sorry, sorry, it doesn't divide. It says that among the conspiracy theory theorists, some of the varieties are conspiracy theory skeptics, who they define as generalists, who believe there is not sufficient rationality underlying conspiracy theories such that any theory of them is worth pursuing. And then also conspiracists, which is the label they use for the, the contemporary, the more contemporary sort of more colloquial pejorative sense of conspiracy theorist. The, um, the I think, uh, pe uh, as they put it, people who uh, have a pathological belief in a conspiracy without any sort of evidence, which I guess yeah, is... What, what do you think hangs think? on these yeah. distinctions in this section? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think, I, I think it's possibly... Because they want to talk about the pathologizing, I think perhaps uh, they they want to they talk about the the charge of conspiracism, the idea that it's uh, it's something you can accuse a person of, um, and I think they just want to they want to have the terminology to be able to talk about conspiracy theorists and not have that immediately be assumed to be a pejorative term, but they still want to have the term conspiracist so that they to, to make it clear when they're specifically talking about this this negative sort of pejorative view of it yeah i remember i think them saying that they didn't necessarily want to abandon the term conspiracy theorist itself because mm -hmm. that would reinforce the cultural norms that it was pathological i tend to use the term conspiracism but not in a pejorative sense just because i find it to be more like smooth linguistically than saying the word conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist yeah. over and over again, just talking about conspiracism just being the kind of proliferating belief in conspiracies, whether that's reasonable or unreasonable. Yes, I, I wonder if a little bit it's because I, I do know that uh, the very first paper Brian wrote on this topic, I think, as him and I saw as we sort of looked at the papers that came after it and the reactions to it, a, a bunch of the reactions seemed to sort of get Brian wrong a little bit in some cases, and part of it was because mm. in the paper Brian would switch between using the term conspiracy theory as a general term and then also talking about a particular kind of conspiracy theory that he was had a problem with in that early paper. So I think maybe maybe he learned his lesson there and they really want to be absolutely certain when they're talking about conspiracy theories in general versus ones that people might think are suspect or conspiracy theorists in general and ones that people might think are getting something wrong. Mm-hmm. But so then we now we move into section five, how likely are conspiracy theories? My my first reaction was was sort of who cares if if we are taking a particularist position then surely whether or not conspiracy theories are common that's more of a general fact that doesn't really matter that that, that was sort of my first thought but then I see they get into the idea of sort of there are issues around burden of proof for instance and um, what it what it might how it might color your approach I guess. Yeah, I mean, this is for me where things start to really get off the rails in a big way, I feel like, because I don't think we have an ability. Like, you know, it used to be when I would talk about conspiracy theories, I would say, look, we do not want to get into a particular place where we have to, like, assess the 
plausibility of individual conspiracy theories because a you're going to be chasing down rabbit holes forever and like b you may not have an ability to assess the likelihood of alien life being covered up by the government like we don't i don't even know how you would start to begin to assess the likelihood of something like that um but given that i do think we are stuck in that particularist place now i think i don't see that we have a clear answer to this question i think it means you know, that's similar to what you're saying that, like, once you've abandoned generalism, um, you're fucked on answering the question yeah. of, like, how likely are these conspiracy theories and what does that mean is an interesting question. Yes, I, I'm guessing, I, I, I think possibly just the main purpose of this, um, this section is to get into the sorts of stuff that Lee Basham has talked about in, in terms of sort of the, the societies and the, the world we live in and what that says about our attitudes towards conspiracy theories. Because obviously, I mean, there is a, there's a, a sort of a, a cultural social context when it comes to these sorts of things. There are times and places that, we, that, that it's sort of been well known are, are more conspired than they are now. Uh, Ems, having spent time in Romania, talks about there's a period there where there was, you know, the secret police disappearing people and stuff like that. You you knew full well if you lived in that society that um, that, that conspiracies mm-hmm. were going on all the time, and there's been talk about sort of the um, the uh, African American attitudes towards COVID vaccines and so on, because these are people coming from a place that the Tuskegee happened, the Tuskegee experiments happened to that sort of section of society, so that it, it does color yeah. what you think about these things. Yeah, and that's why I particularly say that we're fucked these days, is because I do feel like colonialism for starters is a you know centuries long Mm. massive conspiracy that is right there you know often out in the open but often secret in various ways too and you know makes a reasonable sort of case for distrust you know i think capitalism is often you know like resplendent with various conspiracies Mm. um you certainly have racial conspiracies in america up and you know up through probably the present right i would you could argue that like there's racial elements to things like the the proud boys at january 6th and stuff like that so um yeah i do think your context matters and the modern context is bad not just because of the internet but because we actually have more knowledge of the history of real conspiracies. So, you know, I was, I watched the better way anti-vaxxer conference recently for the skeptic writing articles for them. And they, they referenced the story, which is a true story about America using a polio vaccine drive to do DNA testing secretly to catch Osama bin Laden. Mm. And that's a real thing that happened. Yep. And it's horrible that it happened and it's terrible that it's now public and that like, it undermines, you know, belief in vaccinations. It undermines trust in governments. Like, there's just, you know, Watergate is one version of this, but I think we just have so many of them now. And then, you know, you add in social media and it becomes plausible that, like, there's lots of this stuff happening out there. Yeah. So, um, as Eamon Bryan put it, in a world where people conspire all the time, it would be inappropriate to dismiss talk of conspiracy theories generally. In such a world, the evidence and incidents of past conspiratorial activities should inform our judgments about the possibility of a conspiracy occurring here and now. This in turn means we should take any claim of conspiracy, a conspiracy theory, in such a world seriously. Nothing about the story tells us that the conspiracy theory in question will be warranted, because even in a highly conspired world, some, if not many, conspiracy theories may still still turn out to be false. Which leads him into the talk of, of, of Lee Basham, who I... I I remember one of his earliest papers sort of making the point, we can imagine what it would look like to live in a world where we're certain that no conspiracies are happening and it doesn't look like the world we're living in right now. Right. So as uh, as they I struggle to even imagine what that world would look like, but yeah. Well, exactly, yeah. Uh, so, so they say, Lee Basham Fon has explored how our idea of the prior probability of conspiracy affects our belief of whether theories about conspiracies are worth investigating, which this, this seems to be changing tack a little bit, um, talking about which theories are worth investigating is different, whereas up until now it's kind of been which theories are rational to believe in. Um, this, is talk- this seems to be taking a step back to mm-hmm. whether, you know, what, what, what we should bother looking at at all. Or maybe a step forward in the particularist sense, right? We've accepted that, like, we have to explore, 
we have to investigate these theories. So the question is, which ones are worth investigating? The, the, the worst case scenario would be all of them, right? If we have to mm-hmm. investigate all of them, we're in a bad way, it seems like. I don't know how particularists avoid that problem. Like, it seems to me that, you know, there isn't a solution there, but yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. M does seem to bite the bullet on that one. I mean, M, M has said in the past that, look, if if it really was true that shape-shifting reptilians are controlling the planet, we would want to know about that. So, but 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 from there, I don't know where you go. I, and I don't know. I haven't really seen much talk about when we talk about investigating how much investigation is required. If you have a theory that, um, you know, magical pixies are responsible for something, well, we have no reason to believe that magical pixies exist. So is that it? Can we, can we stop our investigation right there or do we have to go further? Yeah, I struggle to understand what investigate means mm. in this context. Mm. Right. Like, let's say I'm I'm trying to answer the question of whether there's aliens being hidden by the American government. Like, it seems like a non-starter as an investigation topic for me as an individual. Right. I can go online. I can read a bunch of stuff. You know, most of it's going to be unreliable. Right. I can try to physically track down evidence that's going to be unreliable. Right. I can. And I also I think it seems like have a reasonable inference that if there is this conspiracy and it has been maintained for this period of time, I'm not going to be able to crack it. I'm not an expert in any of the things that would make me able to crack it. Um, So I'm not sure what's meant by we should investigate it here. Yeah, I don't know. That, it, 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 that isn't really a direction that they that they explore in this particular paper. I think um, in this section, I think they're more just talking about this whole idea of prior probabilities and what that says about things. Um, and also, I, I'm never quite sure when I read through, because I've only been exposed really to the philosophy side of things when there's a lot of work going on in social psychology and stuff like that. And some of that are things that M, the likes of Emma are reacting to here. So in particular, because they say things like uh, in this section, why is it important to make claims about the prior probability of conspiratorial activity? Well, a notable feature of the academic debate about the supposed irrationality of belief in conspiracy theories is how various theorists account for cases of warranted conspiratorial activity in the historical record. Turns out that whatever your definition of conspiracy, you might have to explain away how examples of known conspiratorial activity and theories about that activity are either not really conspiracies or not the proper subject of conspiracy theories. So I wonder if that's mm-hmm. I, I wonder if the section is sort of is aimed a little bit bit more perhaps at the some of the other disciplines where they do tend to take a much more generalist view and they're trying to sort of gently poke some of the poke some holes and point out some of the problems in that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. Before this, I was prepping for another chat that I'm going to be doing with an Ancient Aliens podcast, and I was watching an Ancient Aliens episode that happens to talk about the founders and their connections to the Ancient Aliens, you know, and all the usual stuff via the Freemasons and things like that. And, right, we we all accept that the conspiracy of the Boston Tea Party happened, right? Like, that was a conspiracy, and it, it achieved a, it was aimed at achieving a specific goal, right? I think we all probably accept that a lot of the founders or some amount of the founders were Freemasons, that they were involved in you know, these kind of secret societies, quote unquote, which had varying degrees of, you know, significance in terms of social connections, if nothing else, right? Um, And then like, how do we know that to then draw the line between that and, and the reason they did those things was because they were in contact with ancient aliens, right? Like, that seems an intuitive bridge too far, but if, if you know, we're taking seriously this idea that like, what seems a bridge too far is societally constructed, why should we actually treat it as a bridge too far? Yeah, yeah. That might come into some of the next section that they go into because the the next section is called Conspiracy Theories as Improvised Knowledge. And they, I think, are trying to sort of compare uh, conspiracy theories to scientific theories and and perhaps give us some idea about how we could get into investigating them when compared to how we investigate scientific theories. Mm -hmm. So they say... In some sense, conspiracy theories are theories like any other. 
Yet there's something special about the term conspiracy theory. Take, for example, scientific theories. There are an awful lot of scientific theories being generated on a daily basis, many of which, in the fullness of time, will turn out to be false. The process of assessing scientific theories is one of sorting out the wheat from the chaff. Yet we do not think of scientific theories as inherently prima facie unwarranted. Rather, we realise that the process of discovering scientific truths requires postulating new theories, testing said theories, and abandoning bad theories for good ones. So there's, there's a little bit, and I know there was an earlier paper where they did a similar thing about religious theories, suggesting that the way we treat them uh, is different from how from sort of the limitations of what hmm. we put on conspiracy theories. But um, they go on to say that where, where conspiracy theories are different from scientific theories are in terms of what calls for investigation or perhaps even merits a sceptical response. So they say... This points to the the quote-unquote improvised element of the epistemology of conspiracy theories. In the case of science and medicine, there's a clearly defined group of experts as well as a means of disseminating knowledge, and the rest of us non-experts are supposed to ingest and trust those results. But this is not the case when it comes to those phenomena conspiracy theories tend to be about. Yet there are investigative reporters and official agents, sorry, yes, there are investigative reporters and official agencies, but it is a much more haphazard epistemic system because there are no recognised experts in these things we call conspiracy theories. Not really sure what such an expert would look like, though. Yeah, like, am I an expert because I've read a lot about anti-Semitic conspiracy theories Mm. and know the tropes and know some of the lines of arguments or something like that? And does that help me at all in telling whether a theory is true or false, right? Like, because I can point out that QAnon is like blood libel, does that mean that I can argue that QAnon is less plausible as a result or just more dangerous? I would say only more in the more dangerous camp, I think. Mm. Yes, I know we have, this is something that we've looked at in the past, these conspiracy theories that come up that are clearly just a repackaging of an old one. And when it gets to that point, can we just say, okay, well, look, this this theory here, it's, it's... um, it's just the satanic panic in a in a different disguise, or it is just blood libel in a different disguise. So can we then just say, okay, well, unless you had anything new to say, we can write this one off because we've already looked into the other ones and and decided that there's nothing to them. Yeah, but I'm not sure if we can even do that on the yeah. particular view, mm-hmm. right? Like, can I really say, because the concerns about gender-affirming care being promoted uh, for young people is tied to like for-profit medical industry, you know, that looks like anti-pharma conspiracy theories, but can I actually assess it based on that, you know, family resemblance or do I need to dig into the particulars here? Um, one other thing I want to mention here before I forget about like one disanalogy I think is worth mentioning with science versus conspiracy theories Generally, I think we we don't think when we're doing science that there's an entity out there that's actively trying to confound us, right? The universe is a pain in the ass, but like not a conscious, you know, like deliberate hiding itself pain in the ass, right? Whereas on the, the conspiracy theory view, part of the conspiracy is that they are actively trying to prevent you from exposing them. So in theory, you're, you're shooting for a harder epistemic target, which makes it more likely that even if you don't find evidence, you might still think that there's reason to think that there's more evidence out there or something like that. So I do think at least like there's a disanalogy here and I don't know what the actual implications are for it, but you know, this, this to me contributes to the problem of can we assess the plausibility of any conspiracy, no matter how much data we acquire against it or something. Yes. Yeah. That's a point. That's a point that's come up before. Uh, I don't recall off the top of my head. I think it was one of Brian's papers, especially talking about falsifiability, where they'll say, you know, the problem with conspiracy theories is that it, it, it can be the case that they're unfalsifiable when you say, um, yeah, I, I think this conspiracy has occurred, and someone says, well, there's no evidence for that, and then the person says, aha, well, that just proves it's happening. That, that, the, the fact that there's no evidence is evidence because that shows how well they're covering it up. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, I... I I've seen the reply that that's basically exactly as you just said, the difference between falsification and say scientific theories and conspiracy theories is that yes, you, the, the, the object of your study in a scientific theory isn't actively hiding itself from you. And yet in the case of conspiracy theories, part of it can be that um, there, there is this active attempt to, uh, to, to hide the evidence. And so in, mm-hmm. in cases like that, possibly a different standard applies. 
And if you're, you know, taking a conspiracy like the aliens where you have possibly technology that looks magic-like to us, right? You know, even mm-hmm. the like the basic criteria of, well, this conspiracy involves so many people that it's highly implausible that it would, you know, be pulled off without being revealed. Well, if you have a technology that's like mind control or something like that, does that undercut the idea that, you know, maybe you have a hive mind of individuals all working in such synchronicity that you don't have a high risk of exposure, even when lots of people are involved. Mm. So, um, uh, well, as, as they say, actually, of this this whole sort of discussion, the result of this situation is that there is a significantly higher degree of uncertainty in theories about the presence or absence of conspiracies in the social worlds of politics, business, and other social domains that, as we described above, are not uncommonly chock-a-block with opportunities, means, and motive for collective clandestine activity. As one of us has argued elsewhere, referring to Brian's 2007 paper, agnosticism about a claim is not necessarily called for where one has investigated and corroborating evidence is not forthcoming. However, in situations where investigation has not been carried out or whether the, where the process of investigation is in fact more haphazard and fraught with inadequacies and challenges, agnosticism is concomitantly more merited. So I mean, they, they do seem to be going for that that attitude of um, of, of withholding judgment unless until an investigation has been done, whatever that means. So, I mean, I don't I, I, I get the impression, I, I can't speak for him specifically, but I, I get the impression that they're willing to, to bite a bunch of these bullets that um, that you seem to have problems with. But uh, yeah, know, well, it reminds problems. Me, I mean, it's funny. It reminds me a lot of um, discussions about atheism and belief in God. Um, and I also happen to think that like belief in Satan is one of the classic conspiracy theories. We... I'm skeptical of the idea that you can be agnostic about certain questions like these that have such a profound impact on how you understand and see the world. And I'm skeptical that you could be agnostic about these conspiracies in a way that like doesn't feel to me essentially a kind of psychological cope where you just don't think hard, you don't think too hard mm-hmm. about the fact don't know um because that could sort of let loose you know an avalanche of of paranoia or something like that right like to me the you know if you take seriously this argument we have reason to think that like there's a lot of mundane conspiracies happening on a regular basis and we don't know that there aren't the sort of less mundane conspiracies also kind of happening and yeah i think that should produce anxiety probably um to some extent um i don't know if that's you know where they end up with this kind of with these kinds of arguments but i think they they certainly point out that like a lot of the generalist positions are a kind of cope right an attempt to sort of avoid this slide while also not um while also being able to kind of accept the history of actual conspiracies and things like that in very ad hoc ways and i think once you clear out those ad hoc solutions i think you're in a pretty scary place yeah i think agnosticism can sometimes be a bit of a uh i don't know a a theoretical position to take in that you'll say you know people people say they're an agnostic they behave as though god doesn't exist they don't go to church they don't worship they don't pray uh and and saying they're an agnostic will essentially means like i'm not completely ruling out the idea that god exists um if i were to find proof that he does i'd be kind of surprised but i'd accept it sort of that so so i wonder if it can be it, it, it can be um just a bit of a hedge i guess more than anything i don't know I guess it comes down to whether the the conspiracy is tied to something pressing in terms of mm. your behavior, right? So yeah. whether or not Jeffrey Epstein was murdered might not affect my day-to-day behavior, but whether or not I believe that like climate change is a conspiracy theory would, right? And I think most of us go around, they're like people who are listening to your podcast, more likely to go around acting like climate change is real and not just a conspiracy meant to slowly depopulate parts of the planet or something like that, right? So I don't, I don't think it's agnosticism is livable in those cases, but I have to think we we have to acknowledge if agnosticism is the reasonable position, we're all to some extent adopting irrational positions when we just sort of behave as if the door has been closed on certain conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true. Now, the next part um, is 
what uh, uh, about 20 minutes ago I said, I can't remember if they talk about this at all. They, they do talk about uh, investigating conspiracy theories because chapter se- section seven is called investigating conspiracy theories. Um, should have read ahead in my notes. But this, the, the, the whole section, uh, th- this is the last section before the conclusion. It does read a little bit disjointed. I think the, the more papers, I, the more academic papers I've read and discussed with them, the more I sort of get a feeling for how things work. I mean, we've had cases in the past where There'll be a, there'll be a, a little a section of a paper where we're not quite sure what that's doing there, and almost always the answer is to shut up reviewer B, essentially. And uh, this mm-hmm. this section here seems there seem to be a bunch of points that, that are in here which seem to be a case of we here are these all th- all of these other things we wanted to discuss. Let's stick them in here because we need to mention them. But they do start by saying, how would one then go about investigating some conspiracy theory? Uh, surely a great many of them are going to turn out to be unwarranted. So they they start to look at what we might do about this, again, still in fairly um, theoretical terms. But they say... Um, now, there's a tendency among generalists to claim that if a conspiracy were going on, then we'd know about it, presumably because conspiracies always leak, or that there are sufficient checks and balances in place to ensure that, by and large, those who hold power in Western societies will not get away with acting conspiratorially. Yet there's another approach to the issue we should consider, one philosophers such as Charles Bigden and Lee Basham have long challenged us to acknowledge, a point to which we really should be basic to anyone's understanding of politics and business. Conspiracies are everywhere, and not just that, they're normal. And again, I wonder if you can get uh, – th- this, this seems to be the point where a person who wants to make the point that conspiracy theories are irrational will say, well, yes, 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 again, sure, those those conspiracies are everywhere, but those aren't the ones we mean. You know the ones we mean, which obviously can be a lot harder to define uh, when you talk about, uh, when, you, when right. you start to think about it. Yeah, like I mean, maybe you could try to say like, well, the, any any conspiracy theory that violates the laws of nature or posits, mm-hmm. you know, something that we is you know incomprehensible to us given our current science or something like that has a higher degree of unlikelihood or or something. But all of that feels like it falls apart pretty quickly. And even still, like there's a vast number of potentially really harmful conspiracy theories to believe that are perfectly plausible that involve, you know, military coups and assassinations and, and like geopolitics and stuff like that. Yes. I think anyone who's looked into the the history of what the CIA has been up to uh, over the time of its existence, um, right. probably can't, can't, can't find implausible a lot of conspiracy theories about yeah. In fact, I've I've yeah. said this before. I, I I knew someone. I worked with a guy who said he he believed that nine eleven was an inside job, and his specific reason for it was because that's the sort of thing they'd do. The, he he it was his opinion was that yep no the, the government would be quite quite happy to kill off a bunch of its civilians to put through a to to to, to enact a bunch of laws thereafter. My final project of high school uh, for my IB theory of knowledge course was a accounting uh we we had read like um uh house of the spirits which is by um isabel allende salvador allende's daughter and talks about the the overthrow of the government there by the military backed junta uh by by the cia and the military um and so i i did a report on like all of the domino effect based sort of anti-cold war tactics in south america iran contra and stuff like that and it's like you know if your conspiracy is the most recent fall of a socialist um you know government in south america is backed by the cia like i think you have good reason to think that's plausible right like they've done that a lot yeah um so yeah i do think that it's it's hard to you know as they say in the in this chapter right why people believe weird things is the implicit understanding of conspiracy theories, but like it's not weird to think that the CIA would be overthrowing communists. Like that's that's their job. So then you know, like, what do you do then? How do you investigate these kinds of questions? Uh, I don't I don't see like that's where I think things get a little bit trickier here. Yeah, yeah, they uh, yeah they, they say the why do people believe believe weird things thing, which I think is their characterization of what sort of in that social psychologists and others tend to end up asking. And the problem is that, again, how do you define weird? It gets back to all that problem of definitions. But they go on to talk about, again, this, this idea of what's what should you investigate, I guess, um, referring to 
things that have happened in the past, such as um, Operation U-Tree in the UK, the Moscow show trials, Watergate, things like that. We, we know that there have been instances in the past of, of the establishment of the powers that be, of whatever you want to call them, uh, getting up to nefarious things and, and trying to hide it. Um, so as they say, if some claim about the existence of a conspiracy, say, involving members of an influential public institution turned out to be true, then we'd be obliged to take action. The existence of conspiracies does not just threaten our trust in the influential institutions that make up our societies, they can also pose a direct threat to members of the public. I, I worry that can that can lead you down a whole bunch of rabbit holes there if, right. in, in terms of... If, so the, the the bigger and the more wide ranging, and and the more almost fantastical you make your conspiracy theory, that kind of says the more obliged you are to investigate it. Yeah, and like I I worry that if they got the world, so the world there's so instead of saying like here's how you as an individual should go about investigating, what this section ends up doing it seems to mm-hmm. me is saying you know we would be more reasonably inclined not to believe a particular conspiracy if we lived in a world where there wasn't a stigma about investigating conspiracies and we reasonably believe that like journalists were out there investigating these things so that there was a kind of expertise that we could rely on but i also have to imagine in that world you'd still have this problem that i think folks like em are concerned about which is a lot of journalism reporting on conspiracies and i just like you'd have to have you'd have to somehow solve the problem of journalism where like they wouldn't be sensationalistic about it because otherwise you're just going to get a lot of like sensationalistic debunking of conspiracy theories and i'm not sure that's actually going to increase trust i I worry that this, this like idea of trust in journalists is a bit of a like upstream problem that like you know ties into the way that especially in America, the right has sort of destabilized the idea of reliable journalism entirely, you know, and and thereby, I would argue, created a space where conspiracies have have really heavily festered. Yeah, I mean, it it seems to be, at least if we go by where where they end up in this section, that that they seem to be arguing for the idea, essentially, that you shouldn't not investigate conspiracy theories, I think is where they're going. So that that yes, it's it's difficult to find out which ones should be investigated and what's worth investigating. Those that those are difficult questions to answer. But what you don't want to do is say, okay, so let's let's never look into conspiracy theories because then people can get away with this stuff. Because they they sum up the section by saying The risks are real. In an environment in which people take a dim view of conspiracy theories, conspiracies may multiply and prosper. Conversely, in an environment in which conspiracy theories are taken seriously and investigated by journalists, police and the like, conspiracies should be much more likely to fail. Thus, influential institutions and the people who run them are more likely to be trustworthy if they are not automatically trusted, but rather are subject to the vigilance of, say, an investigative press which does not think it a mark of intellectual sophistication to dismiss conspiracy theories out of hand, and a public who know not just when they are obliged to ask questions, but when they can expect others to do likewise. Which, uh, yeah, kind, quite, I like, I get, kind of a utopia. But... I mean, I'm sympathetic to it, but like, and I don't mean this as a cheap shot, but like, I can hear this coming out of the mouth of Alex Jones, no problem. And right, he can just say, you know, what I want is to be that sort of investigative check on journalism. And I like this first, these first couple of lines about in an environment where people take a dim view of conspiracy theories, conspiracies may multiply and prosper. I get that. I'm sympathetic. You know, at the same time, I think conversely, it's also true that in an environment in which conspiracies are taken seriously, they can multiply and prosper. <laughs> like, mm. I'm not convinced that taking them seriously, as suggested here, would make them more likely to fail. I think, you know, I think there's always going to be some amount of people who are taking them seriously and a lot of people who are potentially dismissive of them. But I, I'm not sure that. That there's like a, like the trust in journalism here is so the you know directly tied to belief about the nature of conspiracy theories themselves. Um, and then like there's one other thing here. Let's see. Um, you know this idea that like if we don't automatically trust people, um, there's less likely to be conspiracy theories. I mean it's an interesting question 
it, it kind of cuts across the argument that like we have a rise in conspiratorial thinking because of things like Watergate. The idea of that is that like there was a widespread trust in officials prior to Watergate that kind of gets dynamited by Watergate. And once you open that floodgate, people start to like be much more conspiratorial in general about the the federal government. So in that situation, you have a rise in distrust caused by the exposure of an actual conspiracy. And it doesn't lead to more trustworthiness. It leads to less, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder if they're if they're thinking of the scenario or if Ian specifically is thinking of the scenario of um of of the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist being used as a as a as a as a weapon as a tactic to deflect um, criticism. I know we, we specifically had the one case here in New Zealand a while ago, back when the the previous when the national government, our, our right major right wing party, was in power. Um, a journalist called Nikki Hager wrote a book uh, called off the top of my head, The Hollow Men, I think it was, um, where he basically pointed out how the national government had been. Um, sort of conspiring with local bloggers and the like to sort of launder sort of cheap shots and dirty tactics through what was supposedly third party, unconnected third parties, and it, it was all true. Yeah, it, it was never it was never refuted. It was all backed up and shown and 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 shown to be accurate. But at the time, mm-hmm. the prime minister at the time, John Key, his only response to it was like, "Oh, Nicky Hager, you know, he's just a conspiracy theorist," and that was literally the end of the conversation. Um, right. So I think that th- th- that's one particular scenario that they certainly want to look to avoid: the idea that you can just use conspiracy theory as a magical word to get rid of um, uh, criticism. But there are, of yeah. course, a whole lot of other scenarios. And, and like you say, you, you, you bring up a conspiracy like Watergate and suddenly that has, does enormous damage to trust in institutions. I also do think there's something – I'm not sure that I want to abandon the idea that there's a sense in which you can say Alex Jones is a conspiracy theorist in the pejorative sense and anything that he says should be dismissed as such, like – you know what I mean? Mm. There's no reason to chase after every conspiracy theory that comes out of Alex Jones's mouth. Um, so, you know, maybe the maybe part of the move here needs to be mo- a move away from discussing generalism with regard to actual specific conspiracies and towards, uh, you know, uh, an expertise approach where we acknowledge that like this person is a reliable expert who consistently debunks conspiracies. This person is an unreliable, you know, conspiracy monger who consistently promotes conspiracy theories, you know, um, assess your probability of their claims accordingly. Yeah. 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 That almost seems to be a version of the, the, the prior probability, how common are conspiracy theories in society approach, but relating to individuals, how how on the money are they? What's their history of... Well, right. It has been interesting to look at sort of the, the history of the literature and, and philosophy, at least. You do get those different right. approaches. Some people look at the theories themselves. Some people look at the theorists themselves. Some people look at the society in which these things occur. And we don't need to, I think, make a jump like some generalists do from Alex Jones is a dangerous and unreliable conspiracy theorist to all conspiracy theorists are as dangerous and unreliable as Alex Jones or Mm. something like that, right? That like we can talk about these extreme cases while acknowledging that probably the uh, the majority of cases fall into a grayer area. Mm. I I think that, that those two things are reconcilable, you know, I think... Uh, there has to be a point at which you've thoroughly debunked a source or concept enough that like, you know, the next time a, a rewrite of the Protocols of Zion comes along where they replace Jews with, you know, whatever new mm. Freemason thing we have, like, you can just say that it's still wrong. Yes, I mean, using the analogy with science again, surely there are there are theories that um, that we can just say, yep, no, we've we've looked into that, and and no, thank you. We 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 don't need to bring back phlogiston. We don't need to, you know. Right. The worst versions of like the science ones is when things do come back. So f- I was just talking with the ancient alien guy about this, and he, you know, I was I was mentioning that there's been a move away from the unified origin theory of humans and back towards a multi-origin 
theory of of evolution of of homo sapiens sapiens which the multi-origin theory is one that's commonly associated with various kinds of like atlantean ancient alien stuff and so i'm like from my perspective i hear about normal scientists following the evidence back towards another theory and i think oh good the conspiracy theorists will be like see Mm -hmm. we were right all along and jump on that kind of thing and yeah Mm. anyway we've reached the conclusion of this paper which I think Mm. is short enough that I can read the whole thing. It goes, as we have seen, a lot depends on how we define conspiracy, conspiracy theory, and conspiracy theorists, with much of the academic debate over the warrant of belief in conspiracy theories being very much uh, predicated on which side of the definitional coin you take. This speaks very much to the improvised nature of conspiracy theories in general. There are no accredited experts, no institutions of learning devoted to studying such things, and as such, there's little consensus on these things called conspiracy theories. This has led some scholars, such as David Cody and Lance DeHaven-Smith, to argue that we should drop the terms conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist. Rather, they suggest that we should focus on conspiratorial explanations and the evidence for and against them. We advise against such a move. While it's tempting to wipe the slate clean and approach talk of conspiracies in a fresh, less pejoratively labelled light, all such a move does is further cement the pejorative take on these things called conspiracy theories in public discourse. Indeed, while there might be some debate over how we define both conspiracies and conspiracy theories, there's much interesting work to be done with them. The improvised nature of such theories and belief in them is fertile soil for the applied epistemologist. From the analysis of issues such as how a definition of what counts as a conspiracy informs how conspired we think society is, to talk about how we should appraise the merits of theories concerning conspiracies, the philosophical discussion of these things called conspiracy theories raises interesting, and we argue essential, questions. For example, what obligations, if any, do we have when we find out about some putative conspiracy? Or how exactly should we proceed when investigating conspiracy theories? While conspiracy theories might sometimes be thought of as an unfortunate and undesirable epiphenomenon of political culture, an examination of issues such as these is of great interest to the applied epistemologist. Which I think right right at the end there, I think they raise some of those issues that we've... um, we've discussed already so it's this is very much i think a, uh, an overview of the theory but um th- there's mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of practice involved especially as as you say when there are these real tangible real world effects happening in part because of the spread of conspiracy theories yeah yeah it's a there's a very to be continued vibe mm. to it that i don't um that I, i'm struggling with personally right now i think i would really prefer that it was easier for us to help people understand why they shouldn't believe a particular conspiracy theory. Um, and I'm struggling to find things to readily point to. And it feels like every week there's, you know, a new conspiracy revealed that like mm. makes it that much harder. Right. Like we, you know, how are you supposed to feel about the January six hearings right now? For example, is it good that like they are revealing that the president and the secret service were involved in an attempt to overthrow the government? Is it bad? Mm. Like it seems like Watergate times a lot. Um, and it makes me, makes me really nervous, uh, especially in American politics. I think other countries have this problem to a slightly less degree for a couple of reasons that maybe we could, talk about some other time but i Mm. think one of the main ones is the religious connection to conservatism here makes people more susceptible to belief in a large unjust conspiracy in this way but yeah i think it's going to continue to cause problems for us yeah yeah so i think i i I do wonder sometimes a little bit when it when we're talking about the epistemology of conspiracy theories i it, it sounds like they want to come up with some sort of a framework some sort of uh a theoretical idea of what that that could then be applied right. to how do we how do we look into these things and it doesn't seem like we're there yet but um this seems to be more and, sort and of i wonder if particularism yeah i wonder if the particularism allows for the construction of any such framework or that like any attempt to build a framework before it gets off the ground is going to just be disassembling itself because of the problem of particularism yeah yeah i mean i guess you want to say you need to uh, the particularist position would say you want to evaluate each conspiracy theory on its individual merits and and so if if this particular conspiracy theory uh, is not supported by its evidence then okay we can we can take that one off the list and say it's it's not warranted but then that's already raised a whole lot of issues on okay what what evidence who, who whose evidence right. what what what's what good merits. evidence what's enough evidence to to say this way or the other yes so it, 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 it does get well it, it would be great it would be great if we could just say nope all the theories like this gone 
but unfortunately, it doesn't seem that way. Yeah, in philosophy, we talk about the problem of criteria sometimes. Um, Chisholm, I think, gives a good example of this. It's like, how do I distinguish good apples from bad apples, mm. right? I can look at a bunch of individual apples and pull out the ones that I think are good and pull out the ones that I think are bad and try to assess the properties of them. But I have this weird circularity problem where it seems like in order to pull the separate out the good ones from the bad ones, I already have to have criteria of good and bad. But how could I have that criteria without first looking at good and bad apples? Um, so I think with conspiracies, we have the similar problem of like, we want to be able to distinguish good conspiracy theories from bad conspiracy theories and we can't, it doesn't seem like we're able to do that because we mm. can't come up with a criteria without first you know having that criteria yes yeah i remember it was one of i think the bashan's older papers that it, it, uh, reacting to some of the earlier earlier attempts to try and to try and make these uh, divisions come up with these criteria and you sort of said that eventually all these things just come down to uh, good conspiracy theories are good and bad conspiracy theories are bad and the real question is what makes one good and bad and i don't think we i don't think we're quite there yet there was an interesting paper that attempted to do this using ai actually and what they kind of came to was that so there might be some markers of implausibility such as that like a conspiracy forms a theory forms very quickly um so what they find for example is that like you know watergate you take you have years of investigative journalism before the entire picture becomes clear whereas QAnon springs kind of or pizzagate springs like fully formed mm. within six months of inception or something like that right like so those could be factors that could make you you know like like if you're if you're if you if you do feel like we need to adopt some kind of weak generalism and be looking for certain criteria it could be things like that I don't remember what other criteria they had, but, you know, even those, I was like, this, this feels like the right direction, but also like it's going to be a dead end, yeah. you know? Mm. Well, I think we've come to the end of our time. So first of all, thank you very much for being on and, and helping out with this one. It's an interesting situation to have Brian, Brian and Jim both together. Not for the, not for the last time, I believe. Mm. No, my pleasure to you know yeah. come in and, and make things a little bit more confusing for for the Jewish overlord conspiracies. Yep, no, that's what we always want. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to plug before we before we leave? Sure, check out Embrace the Void, Philosophers in Space at ETV Pod on Twitter and whatnots. Uh, read the Skeptic Mag; they do a bunch of good stuff on conspiracy theories. I write there monthly, and you can check out my recent stuff on the anti vaxxers Right, and I'll just say um, there will almost certainly be a, a bonus episode for our patrons to accompany this one. I expect we'll get him back to see what he thinks about what we think about what he said. So if you want to become a patron, you can just go to patreon.com and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. And if you don't want to become a patron, well, you've just listened to about an hour and 10 minutes worth of discussion of, of applied epistemology. So that's that's all the, that's all the thanks we need, I think. <laughs> so... Um, until next time, once again, thank you, Aaron, and to the rest of you, goodbye. Cheers. The podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Denton. Our show's consp- sorry, producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com, and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, keep watching the skis.